It is widely accepted that the ongoing COVID pandemic has had far-reaching and in many cases devastating effects for patients and the national healthcare system itself. In the last episode, we discussed post-COVID syndrome. If you missed it, do go back and listen. Our special guests were superb. We also know now that the pandemic has exacerbated and exposed pre-existing underlying health inequalities. This ultimately results in poorer health outcomes and experiences for disadvantaged and already marginalized communities. But as you'll hear in this episode, you can help close this health gap by applying a personalized care approach when providing patient care. Before we get into those practicalities, I'd like you to hear Steve. Steve has fibromyalgia, which many of you will know is a long-term condition that causes pain throughout the body, together with many other widespread symptoms. Steve was the first patient to take part in a pilot project exploring how clinicians can offer quality, holistic care to people living with chronic pain. In terms of the pain, it's widespread and all over, which I often suggest would be like running a marathon and the day after that feeling where every muscle nerve and bone is aching throbbing and makes any kind of movement agony um but staying still at the same time is also agony this experience though happens every day it may vary in the severity but it's pain every day all day and we just have to get used to it eventually the key part of the clinic we've been trialing is that gp with a good understanding of fibromyalgia is able to spend quality time with the patient and find out my experience of fibromyalgia and the symptoms that i face along with everything i've tried and what worked and what didn't in nearly seven years since diagnosis, this was something that seemed to be a crucial step as both the doctor and me were able to go through everything. And so she had a very good idea where I'm coming from, but I also felt like I was understood. That is such a powerful testimony. Thank you for sharing your experience, Steve. So what can you do to help Steve and others in his position? Shortly, you'll hear from Dr. Selena Stelman and Dr. Benjamin Ellis, who worked together on that pilot. But first, I'm joined by Dr. Bola Owalabi, Director of Health Inequalities at NHS England and NHS Improvement. Hi, Bola. Thank you so much for taking part in this discussion. Many people talk about health inequalities in light of COVID-19, but we know that they were present before that. So why is it crucial to talk about this now in light of the pandemic? So, I mean, thank you so much for the invitation and it's, uh, it's, it's great to join you today. And as you've rightly said, you know, health inequalities predate the pandemic. Uh, we can go all the way back to the 80s for the first formal reports about health inequalities. We know that things like the fact that those with a learning disability have a 15 to 20 year life expectancy gap compared to the rest of the population, that people with severe mental illness have a 15 to 20 year 
life expectancy gap compared to the rest of the population, the fact that people experiencing homelessness, their average age at the time of death is 43 for men, 47 for women. All of these statistics were true before the pandemic. But what we also know is that the pandemic has exacerbated and highlighted those pre-existing health inequalities. For example, we know that six out of 10 people who have died through the course of the pandemic have learning disabilities. We know also in the first wave that black African men were 3.7 times more likely to die. In the second wave, Bangladeshi men five times more likely to die. We know that ethnic minority people make up 14, 1-4% of our population, but they made up a third of the people who ended up in intensive care unit. The point is made, health inequalities aren't new, but they've been forced powerfully into our consciousness by the pandemic and we are left with no choice, as I've said many times, but to leave a powerful legacy behind us from this awful pandemic. And that legacy must be narrowing health inequalities. Wow, Bola, absolutely. And, and I think those statistics really uh, is the harsh truth that we need to hear and that the harsh reality, but the, the true reality that exists out there. And I hope it inspires um, all of us to, to take small actions towards it. And Bola, now moving next to where do you see personalised care fitting in with this, this plan um, of tackling health inequalities? Can personalised care be at the core of the big push in, in tackling health inequalities as well? So the universal model of personalised care is such a powerful opportunity and tool for us to make tangible inroads in tackling health inequalities. It says it on the tin, personalised. The thing about health inequalities is that the people and communities who experience health inequalities tend to get disappeared. Disappeared in the universal conversation disappeared in the universal offer. What personalized care enables us to do is to bring focus to those people and communities, but not just to them, but focus and precision in terms of their needs. It gets us away from the one size fits all approach that often means that those people end up at the margins. You know, the fantastic example we saw in our vaccination program, we had to make a personalized provision for some of our communities. We had to go and put up the pop-up centers. We had to go and put the vaccine in places of worship. That is a personalized approach to population health. So for me, the offer of personalized care goes all the way from the individual to the population, but making sure that we don't insist on a universal offer that then leaves people at the margins or completely disappears them 
that actually very deliberately and proactively focuses, targets our interventions in a way that is meaningful to the individual and that population. And that is the role of personalised care in this space. For now, thank you so much, Bola. We're now very lucky to hear from two very special clinical colleagues, Dr. Benjamin Ellis and Dr. Selena Stillman, who have placed personalised care at the core of what they do. Selena and Benjamin, welcome to the Personalised Care podcast. I'll let you both say a few words about yourselves, starting with you, Selena. Thank you, Bogdan. So I'm a GP working in northwest London in Hammersmith and Fulham, and I've got a sort of special interest in patients with sort of chronic complex pain. So, and particularly the patients who I think have a very difficult time in primary care. Aside from chronic pain, I've got an interest in mental health. I've got an interest in medical ethics and, and teaching. And I've been working on this project for about the last year, together with Benjamin and some other colleagues, trying to uh, yeah improve care for patients with with chronic pain. Brilliant. Thank you, Selena. And over to you, Benjamin. Hi, so I'm Benjamin Ellis. I'm a consultant rheumatologist um, at Imperial College Healthcare, and I'm the head of rheumatology there. I've got an interest um, in chronic pain and musculoskeletal conditions in general, but also I've got a particular interest in public health and how we deliver healthcare services and really think about the health of populations and therefore health inequalities as well. And so one of the things I've been working on over the last year or so is thinking, how can we improve the care for people with chronic pain, but basing that in general practice in primary care where people already are. Brilliant. Well, welcome both. And I guess we'll start with you first, um, Selena. So tell us more a bit about the, the work that you do. Yeah, so I was very fortunate in having a role to do essentially a quality improvement project in primary care. So looking at doing something better. And what I found as a GP is that there was a cohort of patients with chronic complex pain. So particularly this condition called fibromyalgia, where people have chronic pain everywhere, but also have a lot of other both physical and mental health um, challenges related to having this condition. Um, And I just found as a GP, these patients, the way we were currently offering care in primary care just wasn't working well for them. So they get short appointments. They're often under multiple specialties because they've got multiple different symptoms. Their care felt quite disjointed. They were often coming and seeing the GP, but I think they felt dissatisfied with it because they weren't really having all of their needs addressed. As GPs, it felt quite dissatisfying because we knew we weren't necessarily offering them what they really needed or wanted. So what we did is we actually came up with a sort of pilot project where we try to offer a more holistic, more personalised care to this group of patients, which would address not just their pain, where often in in medicine, it's about just trying to give them painkillers, but actually saying, how does this pain affect them as a whole person in terms of their whole life, all the different aspects of their life? And how can we really address that? So together with Benjamin and some other colleagues and actually with some input from patients and, and other GPs as well, we sort of designed a project where rather than patients just calling up because they needed painkillers or there was something with their health that was was bothering them, we choose specific patients with this condition, fibromyalgia, uh, and we would offer them a, a longer appointment. So rather than the 10 minutes with a, a GP, they would get a good 30 minutes with myself as a GP who's interested in pain. And that appointment really is about whatever they want it to be about. We can talk about your pain journey. We can talk about your mental health, about your sleep, about your medicines, about your social life, literally whatever you would like to talk about that's, that's making your life more difficult. So it's about saying to the patient, what do you want to be able to do and how can we get you there? So they have that initial appointment 
But we've then got a fantastic uh, multidisciplinary team, which meets every one to two months to discuss the patients. And that's made up of uh, myself, Benjamin, who obviously gives the sort of more specialist input. We've got a physio, a psychotherapist, a pharmacist, uh, someone called a social prescriber who has fantastic knowledge of sort of what resources are available in the community. So we all meet, we'll discuss the patients. I will discuss different strategies to engage them, um, to try and help with health coaching, goal setting, how we can support them in whatever it is that they've identified as being their area that they that they want to focus on. And then I have a, a follow up appointment with the patients about a month or two after the initial one, which is really to sort of see how they're getting on, to discuss those sort of recommendations from the multidisciplinary team meeting. And there can be a range of outcomes from that. Actually, for some people having just been able to sit down for half an hour and have a conversation is actually all they needed. And actually that's been enough to sort of spur them on to, um, to take some control about their health. For other people, it might be that they need a social services referral or actually they want support with their mental health. It might be that they, they do want to reduce their medications. So there's a real range of, of different outcomes, but I think being able to have the opportunity to have the time with the patients and an appointment which is purely focused on what they want to focus on means that actually rather than us setting the agenda it's them setting the agenda gives them the opportunity to understand their condition a bit more ask questions and just i think have some sort of self-determination otherwise they're in a health system which actually feels like it very much controls them and and they are just a bit lost in it and so i think it gives them a chance to take on some some agency Well, the time aspect sounds very interesting, and I think we will all vouch for more time with our patients. But I'm very curious, why fibromyalgia and chronic pain patients? And how did they reach you in the first place? Have you noticed any discrepancy in terms of um, the populations who would seek more help than others? Yeah, so I think the challenge with the condition fibromyalgia is that these are the patients with the most complex pain. They're not just the ones with arthritis or, or, or sciatica or things. They're the ones with really complex pain. It affects their whole body, all of their functioning. But as I said, they also have all these physical symptoms as well. So uh, chest pain, headaches, nausea, sweating. Uh, they've often got low mood. So already they're thinking in terms of inequalities. They are often patients who've um, had very difficult backgrounds, whether that's in childhood or, or growing up with quite difficult sort of adverse experiences. Um, they've often got underlying depression and anxiety. So they are a group who are already suffering from inequalities, whether it's a result of result of their pain and the mental health problems or or a cause. A lot of them are unemployed. So um, because of their pain, they can't work. So they're on benefits. They are often the sort of lower socioeconomic classes for that reason. So I think they are a particularly vulnerable group. It's interesting because actually they're a vulnerable group who does seek a lot of healthcare. So they are the ones who are often on the GP emergency lists because of their chest pain or their back pain's worse or they've run out of their painkillers or they're depressed. So they often come up a lot. And in fact, they we find that um, we did an audit of the patients in our practice with fibromyalgia and we find that they consult the GP about 13 or 14 times a year, which is significant more than your average patient. They're more likely to go into A&E. They're more likely to be prescribed. Medicines have other, other health problems as well. So they're patients who are using the healthcare system a lot, which is how we often know who they are. Um, but actually, they're not really using it for their overall condition and their whole person. They're using it for all these individual small problems. 
And they're also the ones who are, as I said, they are usually low socioeconomic classes. They're unemployed. They're often, in my experience, uh, ethnic minorities, they're women. Um, and I think actually their voice just doesn't really get heard very much for, for these reasons, perhaps because they find it harder to articulate their needs uh, in the way that the health system's designed. So that's why we sort of specifically thought we'd focus on them. And lots of the principles would be relevant to people with other chronic pain conditions and, and other conditions generally. I've certainly seen that both in the hospital, but also in primary care um, myself. And, and I'm interested to hear more about the tools that you used in your in your pilot um, in terms of supporting the to drive forward that personalised care agenda. And um, what kind of tools did you use practically when, when engaging with the patients? Yes, I think one part is preparing for the consultation, both actually as the clinician and the patient. So in terms of my preparation, I will look through their patient's notes before. So I've got an idea about what tests they've got, what understanding they might have of their condition. So I can sort of help them with that side of things. But I do also try and get the patients to do some preparation. And I think that's important for actually starting this journey of engaging them in their own healthcare. It's not a de- it's not detailed preparation versus arthritis. We've done some really good um, sort of documents which I provide to patients, which just allow them to think a little bit about the aspects of their health that are important to them and their goal setting. I ask them to think about what they might want to talk about. So there's a little bit of sort of preparation really for them to do. The other thing that we do, which we've been doing partly to sort of try and measure our outcomes, but also because I think it's very helpful for both me and the patient, is um, we look at what's called their activation uh, measure. So these are just, it's a questionnaire that patients fill in, and it's just around questions about, I suppose, how they view their health. So it's things like, do you understand what your prescriptions do? Do you feel like you are the person responsible for your health. So they're very simple questions. But actually, it's very helpful, I think, getting an idea of the patients who are really at a a low level, who really actually have very little understanding of their condition, and those who are perhaps much more engaged. And the reason that that measure is really helpful is there's a lot of evidence that the higher scores and the more activated and engaged a patient is in their healthcare, the um, improved outcomes for them, they're less likely to be obese, they're more likely to comply with medications. Also, importantly, um, it's lower costs, for healthcare, so they're less likely to go to A and E. They're less likely to represent present currently. I can definitely see its potential and um, scope for uh, widening its reach, not just for fibromyalgia and chronic pain patients. Uh, it'd be it'd be good to um, involve other groups as well. But I'm interested to find what some of the limitations from your side um, might might have been. So I think the obvious one that perhaps puts people off is, from a clinician perspective, is time. That actually these patients are being offered a thirty minute sometimes 40 minute appointment as opposed to the usual 10 to 15 minute GP appointment. I think the thing with these patients is it's about investing up front. And actually, I, I think if you invest and you spend 30 minutes with a patient and they come out of that patient, that consultation with a better understanding of their clinician with a few very basic goals that they can start with, they might be thinking about reducing some of their medication. It's about starting those conversations. And I think actually, if you put a bit of upfront time in, well, we've, we've seen it with the patients that, that we've done in the pilot, that actually they do come less. They do appear on the emergency list less. They, they are not being referred through to the rheumatologist because actually I can have a conversation in the multidisciplinary team meeting with the rheumatologist and say, actually, I think it's fibromyalgia. I don't think they need to come to clinic. Do you agree? And that saves the patient waiting nine months to, to see a specialist. It saves the appointment. So although time Time is, I think, appears at first glance like a limitation. I think actually it'll be a time saving. I think the other big challenge is really about clinician confidence, that actually it's quite a different way of working is to bring in a patient and say, what do you want to talk about? And actually knowing that you're probably not going to solve that problem by the end of the consultation and the patient's still going to go out with chronic pain. They're still going to go out on medications. And actually the, the tool there is listening to the patient. 
That, that's amazing. I love the upfront investment of time. And I think we'll need you um, to, to try, try and do more training on that. I think that we all need to understand that concept a bit be- better. But I love that. Thank you, Selena. I want to jump in, Selena, and ask you a question. I know this isn't technically on the rules, but what's the difference for you as a practitioner? How do you feel um, as a GP seeing the patients? How do you feel after one of those slightly longer, more patient-led consultations compared to how you used to feel? Yeah, I, I think it's been an absolute game changer for me, actually. I think if you'd asked me a year ago about these patients who you see their name on the duty list and you know them because they're the ones who phone in every week with the requesting the tramadol and you'd go, oh God, it's them again, okay. And actually, I don't think that's to do with the patient. I think that's to do with the fact that we don't know how to deal with them. And the only tool we think we have in our box is to prescribe them more tramadol or refer them over to MSK for the 15th time because we can't fix the problem. Actually, I think the moment that you go, do you know what? Yes, I can't fix the problem. But that's because this patient's had, had chronic pain for 30 years they were abused as a child they live in a 15th floor council flat they've got no support they can't do their shopping um they haven't got any money you know of course I can't fix it but that's because I can't fix all of those social inequality problems and I think as soon as you sort of step back and go okay I can't fix it but maybe what I can do is give a patient to talk about the fact that it's rubbish to live in the 15th floor flat and actually do you know it'd be really nice if someone could do this shopping because actually I can refer to the social prescriber or social services who could get them shopping so I think Uh, that's what this has really been for me is it's so much more satisfying as Benjamin said earlier it has infiltrated through the practice because I think the other GPs aren't trying to fix things either they're also not just throwing medications at the problem they're going okay I'm not I'm not quite sure what to do but maybe Selena's got an idea or maybe someone in the MDT has an idea so I think for me it's been you know it's been very satisfying just taking having those realizations that actually you're not going to fix it straight away and actually listening is just helpful and maybe you can do the small things Thank you, Selena. And thank you, Benjamin. I think, Benjamin, you will join us for uh, the future episodes as well, because I think we should hire you as a, as a co-host on these. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant question. Selena uh, mentioned some beautiful points around multidisciplinary teams. And I know you're, you're a secondary care um, consultant, uh, rheumatologist, um, and it would be amazing to see from your, from your perspective, how important is that MDT element um, as part of this pilot and as part of uh, tackling some of those healthcare inequalities that um, this specific fibromyalgia group faces? but that could be applied to other groups too. Absolutely. So I think the main role of the MDT here has been to reassure um, and to provide support for primary care. So the primary care or general practice to be more specific are able in turn to support the person. I think one of the things we often don't do well in the health service is support one another and then we're surprised why people don't have the capacity or resources to support the patients. So I think um, for people coming to chronic pain anew, it is often quite frightening. It's a bit of a mystery. It's not very well taught at undergraduate level. And we tend to come to it with the biomedical model that most of us have been trained in and most of us feel most comfortable. So we see a problem and we want to fix the problem. We see a person with problems and we want to fix the person. But actually, as Selena so brilliantly articulated, the secret here is not trying to fix and being with the person and enabling and encouraging them. And so I think for secondary care, a lot of our role here is supporting and enabling primary care, enabling general practitioners and their colleagues working in general practice to be able to transmit that as well. So to help contain some of the worry, am I missing another diagnosis, to contain some of the anxiety, is it okay to ask that question about possible childhood neglect or abuse, which is such an important area to explore in trauma-informed care, which is really important when we start talking about health inequalities, and to be able to give um, advice based on experience of having seen 
a lot of these patients ourselves in secondary care they may be having the headaches the palpitations the dizzy spells the irritable bowel syndrome the terrible fatigue and you can't link it up with the social isolation which you might be able to in primary care with the support worker or to try to empower somebody using health coaching or to connect to some social services needs that people may have and that's perhaps even difficult for general practice in in the England system anyway where we're not very well integrated so um, and I think then also in secondary care, if we're passionate about inequalities, I mean, one of the most stark things about chronic pain is the inequality. So if you're a woman living in the lowest quintile, the most deprived quintile um, of the population, you are 45%, one in two, likely to have chronic pain, whereas for men it's 27% if they're living in the least deprived quintile. So nearly one in two women in the poorest quintile of chronic pain, but only uh, one in four men. That's still a lot of men. But you see the health inequalities and we see it not just in poverty, we see it playing out in some minority ethnic groups and we see it um, in people who've come from difficult circumstances, so people that have experienced torture or um, have, you know, difficult early lives as asylum seekers, for example. So we certainly see that. Um, Selena, we could say more in our area. So again, in secondary care, you, you can never make systemic change to what's the support that people will have in an ongoing way in primary care in the community by just seeing people in outpatients. But by taking the same amount of time and supporting primary care to be confident, to have the skills, to build the capacity, um, it feels like you can make a much more sustainable difference and, and reach the people who need it most. What really strikes me is is that not only the, the investment of time that you put in from the secondary care obviously saves you time at both ends, primary and secondary care, but what strikes me is the, the beautiful working relationship that you and Selena have forged over time to support the patients around you together with other multidisciplinary professionals. And I really think that's that's something that you don't find very often um, in, in the... I'll speak for myself, but I found it really rewarding as well. But perhaps Selena, I mean, I think has said to me that um, one of the things which she's seen is even within the practice and to an extent within the PCN where she's working, there has been a knock on as well. So that's not just through other people, clinical pharmacist or the social prescriber um, coming to um, the MDTs that we have, but also people are starting to have corridor conversations with Selena over a cup of tea or over this, saying, well, actually, I've got somebody and I'm wondering if they might have fibromyalgia and I'm wondering if the intervention we're doing might be helpful. And actually, it's starting to change our approach and culture that if we want to support people to be able to improve their own lives, we have to um, make that shift ourselves. And exactly as Selena said, put in the time up front, which is almost impossible to find nowadays. So full sympathy for anybody that wants to do this and doesn't know where to start. But even a small amount will release time because people who are heavy users of services, our initial data is already beginning to suggest um, their attendance and prescribing patterns are starting to change. And I'm sure um, you've already already spoken a, a bit about the outcomes as well, but I'm curious to find out more about the outcomes of the, of the pilot from your perspective. So it's really early days for evaluation. At this stage, yes, we're getting qualitative feedback from people, um, which has been positive um, in the main. There are some people that are unable to use the intervention and haven't found it helpful. Well, that's not surprising. But the very many people are saying um, that they found it very helpful. People have said, this is the first time I feel anyone's ever listened to me. This is the first time that I finally understood what's going on. So that's sort of very rewarding, I think, hopefully, certainly for me, and I think for Selena as well, that sort of feedback. We're looking at the uh, patient activation measure before and after and we have certainly seen an improvement in that which is um, again encouraging 
Um, one of the things where we haven't seen much an improvement is the musculoskeletal health questionnaire, which is a 14-item questionnaire which captures this construct, this concept of musculoskeletal health. It's free to use for anybody in the NHS, and it's been really widely tested, so I'd recommend it. And actually, what we've seen is a slight worsening in the musculoskeletal health questionnaire. It looks like we haven't done the full analysis, and we'll need to see if that's in some domains and not others. But speaking to colleagues who are familiar with this measure, actually what they're saying to me is that's not unexpected because people are starting to do more. And if people who have been very afraid of activity, be very afraid of movement, been very afraid of leaving the house, are beginning to make decisions that they're going to start to do a bit more, it's not surprising that they might be feeling more discomfort. It's not surprising um, that they might have um, some of their symptoms might have worsened. But what we hope we'll see in that score when we do the sub analysis is on things where my understanding of my condition, my ability to manage my condition in particular will improve and will follow people up later. Then in addition to those two um, scoring measures, we're also looking at attendance patterns. We probably won't see um, a difference um, in 12 weeks, but we'll be looking in the longer term. So are people coming um, as often or does attendance drop in, you know, enough to justify that input of time up front? Time, very, very precious commodity across clinical services, particularly in general practice at the moment. Um, and we're also looking at prescribing. And again, I'll tell an anecdote that Selena shared with me that a colleague um, in the practice said, um, I had such a consultation with such and such a person the other week, and this was the first time that I've ever had a helpful conversation about reducing some of the unhelpful toxic medications. And some of the listeners may have heard NICE guideline on chronic primary pain, NG193, which sets out that the evidence for most of the drugs, and particularly gabapentinoids, pregabalin gabapentin, and opioids, we've often been using um, for people with fibromyalgia and similar conditions are really harm, are more harmful than beneficial and there's very little evidence of benefit. Not that we should be taking people off them, it must be a shared decision, but what I think our pilot is starting to show is that when we give when we give people time and explanation and meaning um, and explore how we can support them in other ways, actually people will say the medications aren't helping them very much. Um, in my experience is when people come off the medications in the main, they say my pain is exactly as it was before, but I no longer have all the horrible side effects. So that's a win. That's a big win, Benjamin. The, the outcomes certainly sound better, you know, good for the clinician and good, good for the patient uh, themselves as well. I think we're reaching my my favorite part of the of the podcast, which is asking about practical tips um, for our healthcare colleagues listening at the moment. So, Benjamin, any practical tips um, on a, on a day to day basis that our healthcare listeners can apply, uh, and how how can they take some inspiration from your work, um, and what could they do on a day to day basis um, to to uh, apply a more personalized care approach to tackling health inequalities. So I'm going to say three things, I think, which are the same things that I would say to a person with fibromyalgia or chronic pain in front of me. So the first thing is think long term. So this is not something um, that's going to be solved in a day, a week, a month or even a year. So make long term plans um, and hopefully you'll see some results in the long term. That'd be my first thing. My second thing would be um, that um, change comes through relationships. So if you're a general practitioner or a person working in primary care, such as a, I don't know, practice nurse or a first contact physio or a link worker or anybody um, that's um, interested in doing this, start to have conversations with people around you, start to find out who is interested. And maybe at a meeting or something else, you'll find somebody in specialist care that can start to form links. And that could be, again, be a physiotherapist. It could be a doctor like me. It could be, you know, it could be a nurse working in a chronic pain service or a health psychologist, indeed, who's interested 
interested. So in the same way that we, um, that Salida spoke about, we support people through relationships and through connection. And ultimately what, what we want we want to help people do is build connections within their own community that will nurture them and support them. And um, because of the everything you've spoken about in the social determinants, those relationships are so often broken and chronic pain just erodes them even further. So in the same way that that's what a very important goal, restoring those relationships, and we do that through relationships, we will make change ourselves through forming better relationships between primary care and secondary care. And that will take time, but finding people to work with. Amazing. Thank you, Benjamin. And over to you, Selena, your top tips. Uh, first one, similar to Benjamin, there's no rush. I think personalised care takes time. We're looking at helping these patients improve their whole life, not just one particular medical part. So it's going to take time. So even if you haven't got a 30 minute appointment, actually within a 10 minute appointment saying, oh, you look like you've had a really rough day. Are you OK? You know, and then following that on maybe in a month's time when you have your next 10 minute appointment with them. But actually, we're looking at trying to change help patients change these really complex part of their life and you're not going to be able to do that in one consultation and secondly as I said just not being afraid to be led by the patient um, and there's nothing wrong with that That that's absolutely fine and that might be what the patient needs because they've never been able to lead a consultation before and, and say what actually matters to them and the final thing is I think just just not really under, underestimating the value of listening really and that actually that's I think for a lot of these patients the feedback we get is actually it's really nice to be listened to and actually that in itself is probably more therapeutic than having another medication put on or another test or another x-ray and actually whether that's listening for five minutes or listening for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever whatever amount of time you've got the luxury to have I think that in itself is a therapeutic intervention for patients so just not not underestimating the value of that. And, and Brola, I will go over to you as well and ask you what your top practical tip is uh, as well. So let me take one of the components of the universal personalized care model, supported decision making. So as people come in through our consultation rooms, especially when we think about the elective recovery waiting list, and that there would be so many people on that waiting list who have little or no voice. How can we have a different quality of conversation with people in that shared decision-making space? Because you can only be meaningfully involved in shared decision-making if you've got voice. So our social prescriber link workers who are across the system how are we enabling them to support people to have voice? You know, to understand what the services that they can access are. Number one, awareness. Number two, advocacy. You know, the social prescriber link worker being the person who comes along and says, you know, Joe blogs down the road. I've discovered that they need X, Y, Z. And actually, their first language is not English, but I've been able to spend an hour with them. And it seems to me that this is really the heart of the issue. Can you please put that in your referral letter to the hospital so that the hospital receiver sees that as a person, not yet another referral letter, tangibly as a GP? That's the sort of thing I should be usefully doing in terms of the role of my social prescriber link worker, enabling individuals to be 
you know, equal partners in that shared decision-making conversation. That's the kind of thing that I think personalized care can do now, today, in people's lives. And I will leave people listening. Every single one of us has a sphere of influence. Whether me as a GP sitting in my consulting room or in my role as Director for Health Inequalities at a national level and everything in between, we all have spheres of influence. Please use your voice in your sphere of influence to speak on behalf of the people and communities at the margins of our community who may have little or no voice. What a powerful way to finish. Thank you so much, Bola. We are very grateful to all of you for your support and thank you for sharing your tips and insights throughout the whole of the podcast. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed this episode. I certainly have. And we look forward to hearing more about the programs that you lead and certainly spreading the word around. My many thanks once again to our fantastic guests. Thank you, Bola Obalabi, Selena Stillman and Benjamin Ellis. And of course, thank you, Steve, for sharing your personal testimony. We hope this conversation has been truly valuable to your learning. CPD points for this podcast are available by visiting the Personalized Care Institute's website. Finding this podcast episode under the Podcasts and Webinar section and completing a very short evaluation form. By registering with the Personalized Care Institute, you'll also gain access to many other personalized care learning courses, training and resources completely free of charge. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook too. All websites and social media details are on the episode page. If you'd like to read more about the work done by the health inequalities team led by Dr. Bola Owalabi, please visit the NHS England and Improvement website. We'll be back in our next episode with some more inspiring guests and another exciting topic to help you to empower your patients to get more involved in decisions about their care. See you next time.